that we would know the riches of his glory. So often here in America, it seems like we're, we're worried about the here and now. But Paul is saying, man, there's a future glory. There's a future richness in the inheritance that God has waiting for us. In one sense, we are, as saints, we are Jesus' inheritance. You're looking too far for that need you have inside. You're on a big merry-go-round and it's taking you for a ride. You've got to let go and let go. Welcome to The Cleansing Word. We invite you to stay with us as Pastor John Pinnell of Calvary Chapel Lake Villa takes us through a verse-by-verse study from God's Word. Each Monday through Friday, we'll be airing messages to encourage you in your faith that you might grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I hope that you enjoy this broadcast and I'll return at the close of this teaching to give you more information about our church and how you can obtain a copy of this message. Now here's Pastor John with today's message from God's Word. Today we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 1, finishing out the chapter, verses 15 through 23. And originally I was going to title this, it's kind of long, and I was taught in the school of ministry, keep your titles short. So I titled it, God's Power Toward Us. We don't realize, I believe, the magnitude of the power that is toward us, that is available to us today. You know, guys tend to like power, to have power in in the trades, working and building, and a lot of times, you know, there's only so much that you can do with man's hands, and you can combine together to try to lift uh, with strength, try to move stones or objects that are heavy, and yet you can get a machine that's got the right power and get the right tool with the right power. It's no problem moving things, and oftentimes I think my body hurts the way it does because we often use the wrong tools and uh, try to use our own might, our own strength when we didn't have the power to succeed at what we were doing. Even though we got the job done, we would hurt as a result of it. Today we're going to look at the God's mighty power toward us, his great power toward us that is available to us today as believers in Jesus Christ. Paul wants to get this message across to his readers there in Ephesus, but because it's been given to us through the ages, it's a message that's available to us today. He begins in verse 15 by saying, therefore, and as we said last week in a different passage, when you see the therefore, you have to look back. And two weeks ago, we looked at what Paul is referring to. It's the longest sentence in the New Testament is believed to be verses 3 through 14, where it's talking about all the things that we have in Christ Jesus. Now, because of all these things, and I'm going to rehearse these things to you later, a little summary of verses 3 through 14, but because of everything that the Lord has done for us in the past, in the present, and in our future, and that's what verses 3 through 14 talks about, 
his past work, his present work, and his future work. Because of these things, therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Now, some of the theologians, commentators said that the way that Paul worded this, when I heard of your faith, made it sound like he didn't know the people of Ephesus because he had to hear about their faith, hear about their love. But remember, Paul is writing from prison. The only way he's going to get a message is to get a word from someone to come and tell him, hey, this is what's going on in Ephesus. Now, we learned uh, four weeks ago that Paul spent three years teaching in Ephesus. He knew the people there in the church of Ephesus, but now he's in prison. And, And when you're in prison, well, I'm glad that I can say to you, I don't know what it feels like to be in prison, but I can imagine that you have a lot of time to think when you're in prison. In fact, um, well, let's compare, you know, the prison of Paul's day. I doubt if there were any television sets, just assuming they didn't have them, you know, no radio to listen to, no computer that they could get some time to log on to. They had time to think. If it was a work detail, probably a lot of that. But it gave them time to think. A lot of times, even when working, if you're doing just a task of, think of prisoners breaking stones. After a while, you probably don't have to think too much of what it takes to hammer and chisel. You want to be careful that the hammer hits the chisel, but it doesn't take a lot of thinking to do that kind of menial task. And although it takes a lot of physical energy, your mind can be engaged. And we don't even know that Paul was in any way doing any kind of... um, work while he was in prison. It seemed that he was awaiting trial at this time, waiting trial. It would take him some four years to get his trial before Caesar. And while he was waiting, he was writing. He was hearing about the church. And and this is what he heard. He, he heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus, and he heard of their love for all the saints. Not new information, but renewed in the sense of this is what's going on. It's been several years since Paul had been there. Now he's in prison, and he hears back that they're still intact. Their faith is intact. Their love is there. It's always good to hear about people that maybe you've been wondering about in church life, and there's been a lot of, I wonder what happened to so-and-so or to this family. And you know that many of the families, they're not even in our same state anymore, and they're living somewhere across the United States And yet you still wonder every once in a while, what's going on? You know, how are they doing? They were such a blessing when they were with us. Are they blessing the fellowship that they're at now? Are they even in fellowship? You never know. And so Paul, he heard about their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a foundation stone. It begins with our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But also it's love. There's a combination. And I kind of looked in Paul's writing and looking for the combination of love and faith here in the New Testament, and I found that he mentioned it several times in several of his epistles, and I didn't write all of them down, but I wrote a few down for you. Speaking about faith and love, in Colossians 1.4, he says, Since I heard of your faith in Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, and of your love for all the saints. So the same words given to the church at Colossae. I heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, your love for all the saints, and he, he wrote this church hearing upon them. In Galatians 5, 6, he says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. 
So faith working through love. Wait, as I said, faith is a foundation stone for us. We need to build our life upon faith, but there should be the hallmark of any church. Not only that we have faith in Jesus Christ, but love is evident. Jesus himself said that they will know you, that you are my disciples if you have a love for one another. How are we doing? Faith working together? Is it working together in love? Is this the hallmark of our church? Not only a church of faith, but a church that loves one another. Your love for all the saints. As a result of hearing this, he says, I don't cease praying for you, making mention of you in my prayers. It reminded me instantly of Samuel. Samuel was a priest and prophet over Israel. He was the last judge of Israel. And it was under Samuel's rule that the children of Israel came to Samuel and said, give us a king so we can be like all the other nations. Now, they weren't mad at Samuel. They loved Samuel, but his two sons, they weren't good. And they were wicked. Basically, what the children of Israel was saying that we can't have you. You're going to die. Your sons, we can't have them ruling over us. So give us a king. Now, Samuel felt rejected because of this. And he cried out to God over it. And God said to Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me as being their king over the nation. And so the rejection was really toward God. And God said, go ahead and give them the king, even though it's going to work out bad for them, do what they wish. And Samuel's relating all these things to the children of Israel. In 1 Samuel 12, 23, he says to them, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. See, I think Paul felt much like Samuel and dedicated himself to praying for the believers of Ephesus through the letter that he wrote to them and through his prayers, wanting them to learn the good in the right way. Samuel, just that passage, I should sin against the Lord for ceasing to pray for you. Paul saying that he's praying for the church without ceasing. The responsibility that God gives, especially us as pastors, to pray for the congregation, but I also believe the responsibility that God gives each of us to pray for one another. And quite often, I think we fail. I know I fail in that area. And when I read a passage like 1 Samuel 12, 23, where Samuel says, it would be a sin for me not to pray for you. I get convicted by that. You know, God wants us to pray, what, without ceasing. Paul tells us that we should pray without ceasing. And he's talking to the church there to be engaged in an active prayer life. You know, we try to give opportunity for that to take place here on our own fellowship, but it also needs to be taking place in our own lives, in our own homes, or at our workplace, wherever we can carve out time to seek the Lord and to pray. Praying for other believers, as Paul said here, that I do not cease to give thanks for you. And he, he has some things that he was praying for them about. And he lists those things out in verses 17 through 19. So I want to read that together before we go into detail on it. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of his glory of his inheritance in the saints, 
And what is the exceedingly greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power? These are the things that Paul was praying for the church of Ephesus that he prayed, first of all, to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. I parked on that for a while personally because I often rehearse the triunity of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And we say it that way because there is a divine order to the triunity. And often we forget that the God of Jesus Christ is God the Father. Paul says, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, he addresses the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. John Gill, a theologian that lived in the 16 and 1700s. He died in 1771. But he wrote this about this passage. I really liked the words that I read from him. God, the first person of the Trinity, is the God of Christ. As Christ is man and mediator, God chose and appointed Jesus to be the mediator and made a covenant with him as such. God formed and prepared a human nature for him, anointed it with the Holy Ghost above measure, supported it under all his trials and sufferings, and at last glorified it. And Christ, as man, prayed to him as his God, believed, hoped, and trusted in him as such, and loved him as in such a relationship to him, and cheerfully obeyed his commands. God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul praying to God the Father. God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself Remember when he had resurrected from the grave and he hadn't ascended into heaven yet and Mary Magdalene found him there in the garden or we should say better that Jesus found her there. But she grabbed him in John twenty seventeen, and Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and to your father and to my God and to your God. See, our relationship through Jesus Christ, his Father becomes our Father. His God becomes our God. Apart from Jesus Christ, this would not be true. So he's praying, addressing his prayer to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. And we can take this in two ways, and I believe that both ways are correct. That God is the Father, he is the source, he is the originator of all glory, and also as God... As the Father of glory, it means that all glory belongs to Him. He's the originator of glory. All glory belongs to Him. So He's addressing His prayer. God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. And Paul prays for the believers that they may obtain a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Now the spirit of wisdom, according to Isaiah 11.2, is the Holy Spirit. There in Isaiah 11 Two, it's been kind of titled as the seven characteristics of God's Holy Spirit. There may be many more, but we have seven traits right here in one verse where it says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of understanding, the Spirit of counsel, the Spirit of might, the Spirit of knowledge, and the Spirit of the fear of the Lord. He is the Spirit of wisdom. And Paul is praying that the Spirit of wisdom and revelation... It is, again, through the Holy Spirit that God reveals things to us. And in 1 Corinthians 
Paul tells us the reason the Holy Spirit can reveal these things to us is because he searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. He is the spirit of revelation. I've been dialoguing with several pastors in this area via email right now, and it seems like we're going to have to get together and discuss this issue. But we went last Wednesday night to the Stand with Israel rally over at Channel Lakes Community Church. We went over to the conference there, and some of the pastors in the area are wondering, as a church, should we be standing with Israel? And they're trying to work through Scripture, saying, is that for us today? Is that a position that we should have today? And there's been some dialogues going back and forth between us as a result of that. I believe the answer is yes, and I have written some of the reasons why I believe that. But I also pray that it would be the spirit of wisdom and revelation that would work in all of us. I'm not saying that my position is right and you guys need to change your way, but I think even the Lord can, he can reveal to me so much more through the power of his Holy Spirit. It's a prayer that I have often when studying the Word of God. I, I write commentary to the Word of God and I teach the Word of God. And to be honest with you, I don't want to get it wrong. And yet I know in my flesh I probably have often. I want to get it right when I'm trying to explain the Bible and explain the Word of God. So I need His wisdom and I need His revelation. And, and we need it too as just believers in Jesus Christ. Set me aside as a pastor and I'm just a believer in Jesus Christ, just like you. I want the knowledge of God's Holy Spirit, the revelation in the knowledge of Him. One has said that it's the spirit of wisdom to give us the wisdom to know what to do with the knowledge that He has given to us. There are some people that have a lot of knowledge and they have no wisdom. You know, they're just filled with knowledge and they, they're not wise. They don't know what to do with the wisdom or the knowledge and they ha don't have the wisdom to use it. And God has given us His Spirit to not only give us a spirit of wisdom, but revelation of the knowledge of God, to understand Him, to have a greater understanding toward Him. And that was one of the first things that Paul was praying for the church, that they would have this spirit of wisdom, this revelation in the knowledge of God. Also that their eyes, having their eyes of understanding, being enlightened, prayer number one answered, their eyes have been enlightened. Secondly, he says that they may know the hope, what is the hope of his calling. So with this wisdom that we would have this knowledge and understanding of the hope of his calling. I looked up the word hope in the Greek and found that it's used 68 times in the New Testament, but only one time in the Gospels. And that one time that it's used in the Gospels is not referring to hope in God or hope in Christ. It's just Christ telling a story about somebody having hope in a king, I believe, in what it was. So that one doesn't even apply to the case. But the other 67 times, almost the majority of the times, it's referring to the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. It's a future hope we're looking forward to. Paul would say, in Romans 8, 24 and 25, that we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. 
We've been saved in this hope, but it's a hope of looking forward to the coming blessing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We have this hope that this isn't it. That's why Paul wrote it in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, in that great love passage. He said, as he closed out that chapter, he said, but now abides faith, hope, love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Because the revelation, when we get to heaven, we won't need faith anymore. It's not a faith or belief in God. We'll see Him face to face. It'd be putting faith into something. There's a sense of, there's this unsurety, but there's this trust, this faith. I have faith every time you sit down in these chairs. You have faith that that chair is going to support you, hold you up. You're not going to collapse, fall on your hind end. You have faith. You've just come to know it, to trust it. But there is this faith that we have in Christ. There's this surety that comes with it in our lives. But it's also a hope we're looking forward to because Paul also said in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if in this life we have hope in Christ, only we are of most men the most pitiful. If this hope in Christ is only for this life, and it does us no good once we die, then we're wasting our time. But when we see Christ, faith goes by the wayside because we see Him. Hope, we're not hoping someday I'll be in heaven. We'll be in heaven. But love will always remain. His great love toward us. So he prays that they would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation. He prays that they would know the hope of God's calling toward them. And he also prays that they would know what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. That we would know the riches of his glory. So often here in America, it seems like we're, we're worried about the here and now. But Paul is saying, man, there's a future glory. There's a future richness in the inheritance that God has waiting for us. In one sense, we are... As saints, we are Jesus' inheritance. First Peter chapter 2, Peter wrote it this way in verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you might proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now has obtained mercy. But this inheritance is also our future reward that we've already looked at it here in the first chapter in verse 11. It tells us in whom we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purposes of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. In verse 14, speaking of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until redemption. We have a future inheritance in Christ Jesus. The riches of the glory of his inheritance. You know, I'm so glad that this isn't it. I'm glad that the older I get, that I have this hope that I can look forward to. I'm so glad that there's a future hope. That once we get beyond this flesh, there's a future hope that our Lord has in store for us that we might know the riches of the glory of his inheritance. Father, I pray that you would be with us in this church body. 
And we ask, Lord, that we would know the magnitude, the vastness of this power that's been made available to us. Lord, not that we would be in such a way that people would be turned off, but Lord, that you'd be doing works through us that would cause people to be attracted to Christ. That we'd be doing things, Lord, that would just be revealing your love through us. That they would know that we are your disciples by our love for one another by the faith that we have in you and toward you. Father, I I pray for the power. I pray for the spirit of wisdom and revelation. I pray for these things, Lord, that you have made available to us, that we'd have the hope of your calling in our lives, the riches of the glory of this inheritance toward us, that we'd know the power and might and dominion, everything that is under you that we'd see this great power toward us who believe your wonder-working power. Father, open our hearts, our spirits, to perceive and receive this prayer that Paul gave to the church of Ephesus. May it be for us also today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Calvary Chapel is a fellowship of believers in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Our greatest desire is to know Christ and to be conformed into His image by the power of His Holy Spirit. If you would like more information about Calvary Chapel, or if you would like a copy of today's message, please contact us at 847-265-0646. That's 847-265-0646. Thank you so much for joining us today, and may the Lord richly bless you as you worship Him today.